Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not become old, a treasure in the heavens that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Be like people waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those servants whom the master will find watching when he comes. Amen, I tell you. He will dress himself and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Even if he comes in the second or third watch, they will be blessed if he finds them alert. But know this. If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you are not expecting him. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is coming soon. The truth, you can't handle the truth. There's a line from the 1992 movie, A Few Good Men. That's a line spoken by Jack Nicholson's character as he was on trial. And he's speaking those words to the prosecuting attorney played by Tom Cruise. And, and the point of that phrase is, He's trying to get across that that Tom Cruise didn't seem to understand that when it comes to war, when it comes to keeping America safe, some ugly things have to happen. Some hard decisions have to be made. And Jack Nicholson's character is alleging that Tom Cruise just didn't understand that harsh reality. Now, we're going to borrow that line, that phrase this morning about the truth and the hard truth and handling the truth, but we're going to use it in a little different way in a way that maybe can be better understood um, about a, by, by listening to a story about a little boy and his mother. It's after Sunday school one day, and they're driving home in the car, and his mother asks him, well, what did you learn about in Sunday school this morning? And he says, well, we learned about how Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea. Now, like any uh, good mother, she wants the details. He says, oh, really? Well, how did, how did Moses do that? And, and so the, the boy goes on to describe how Moses constructed this huge bridge across the Red Sea to get the Israelites across and away from the Egyptians that were chasing them. Now, she knows better. And she looks at him and says, really? Is that really what happened? And he says, no. But if I told you what really happened, you would never believe me. It's too wonderful, some of the things that God tells us, for us to believe. And some of them are too hard for us to handle. And we're going to focus on those two things, the hard truth and the wonderful truth this morning. We'll start with the hard truth. Jesus has a pretty simple and direct command here, doesn't he? He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not become old. A treasure in the heavens that will not fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. That's a pretty simple, easy-to-understand command, isn't it? Here's the thing. 
How many of us have ever sold anything precious to us in order to give that money to those who are in need? I'm not talking about taking your old stuff to goodwill or to twice as nice. I'm talking about something you treasure, that you prize, selling it to give it to the poor. Have you ever done that in your entire life? I haven't. I haven't taken something precious to me and sold it just to give that money to the poor. That's a hard truth for me to swallow, isn't it? So we don't do that. We don't obey Jesus' command here to sell our possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. And the second half of Jesus' lesson is all about keeping watch. How well are you keeping watch for Jesus' arrival? There are allusions here to the Israelites being commanded by the Lord to to wrap up their robes so that they would be ready to leave on the night of the Passover. That's why they ate unleavened bread in that Passover meal because there wouldn't be time for the bread to rise. They had to be ready to go at at an instant's notice. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that? I think our attention too often is focused on the things of this world. That instead of watching for our Lord to return, we're watching the stock market, we're watching sports, we're watching politics, we're watching our health, anything and everything except for waiting for our Lord's return. Why is that? Two simple things that our Lord asks us to do as we await his return here. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and keep watch. Keep focus on what is to come. And Jesus himself diagnoses the issue, doesn't he? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, if we're performing a self-diagnosis, maybe we switch that around. We say, where is your heart? And there your treasure will be as well. Where is your heart? I think too often it's focused on our children, on our careers, on our investments, on our health, on all of those other things that we mentioned before instead of being focused on the treasure that Jesus is going to bring for us. Instead of on the kingdom that he is ushering into this world. Instead of eternity, we get so bogged down with the things of this world that we forget that this world is not all there is. In fact, this world is just a a tiny sliver of the eternity that the Lord has prepared for us. And Jesus has a pretty stern warning here about becoming too attached to this world. He tells us the reality, the reality that we know, but the reality that we try hard to suppress. He says that moths can eat the stuff of this world and thieves can take it away from you. That's very practical advice, isn't it? We can save for years in 529s for our children's education. We save for decades for our retirements. And inflation can steal it from under our noses just like that, can't it? We can exercise and eat healthy and do what our doctors tell us to do. And yet, cancer or a car accident, or some other disease can come along and rob us of those years we thought we had in the bank, right? All of the things of this world, the things we become so bogged down with, can be taken away from us in an instant. They aren't lasting. They can be taken away. They can be eaten up and robbed from us. 
Jesus wants to focus on a larger picture, on eternal things. So what's the remedy for this issue that we have with not being able to release our grasp of, of our material possessions, of, of not thinking about the bigger picture and rather being too focused on, on the here and now. What's the remedy? How do we fix it? What's the solution? Well, clearly our solution is to dump your investments in worldly things, right? And give it all away. Sell your new car, sell your boat, forget about that vacation you had planned for this winter or this coming summer. Sell it all, give it to the poor. And then on top of that, then spend every waking moment either reading your word or praying or in worship. Keep your focus laser focused on Jesus' return. Be like a little child with your nose pressed up against the window and, and that's all you care about. Forget about your job. Forget about your family. Worry about Jesus. Think about his return. Anticipate his coming. Make sure you're prepared at an instant's notice to leave, to go with him. Well, that could be a solution, I suppose. But where would that lead us? Many millions, probably thousands at least, of monks and nuns walked that path. They took vows of poverty, they gave up, they left their families, and they spent their entire days in the word and in prayer. Martin Luther was one of those monks, and you know where that path led him? That solution to our inability to free ourselves from the things of this world, you know where that led him? To total despair. To fearing God to seeing him as an angry judge and not wanting him to return, it doesn't lead anywhere but despair or, even worse, to pride. For us to look at ourselves and say, look, I've given away a lot of things to the poor. I'm ready for Jesus to return. That path doesn't lead anywhere, and yet you're probably as aware as I am that that is the message that is taken out of this text in many churches in our country and around the world, that if you want to be ready for Jesus' return, it's up to you. You've got to sell your possessions. You've got to give a certain amount of your money to the poor. You've got to keep your eyes open. You've got to be focusing on Jesus' return and don't worry so much about the things of this world. If it's up to you, will you ever be ready? If it's up to you, will you ever be clean enough Will you ever be pure enough? Will you ever be holy enough? Will you ever be sinless enough? Can you ever give away enough to make yourself worthy of receiving the kingdom? Clearly this cannot be the answer. That's not good news. But I, I wonder if we actually heard the good news in this text. Did you hear it? It's hard. It's hard to hear. It's almost too wonderful for us to hear, but... But here's the good news. Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. The truth is that God is not waiting in heaven. Jesus is not waiting in heaven, waiting for you to give away enough of your possessions. He's not, he's not waiting for you to have the right amount of focus on His return before He gives you the kingdom. He says, The kingdom is already yours. In fact, 
there, this is a past tense verb in the Greek. And what that means is that at a point in eternity, God already determined that He would give you the kingdom. Before you were born, before you could sin, before you were baptized, before you came to faith, before you ever repented, before you ever gave a cent into this offering plate, God determined to give you His kingdom. It's yours. And that changes our perspective of God, doesn't it? Instead of seeing Jesus return on the clouds as something to be fearful of, instead of seeing it as something, I kind of hope he doesn't come today because I wasn't all that good this week. Instead, see God like a grandfather who just can't wait to give a gift to his grandchildren. You know what that's like if you're a parent or a grandparent, right? Where you've, you've gotten something for your child or your grandchild and you just can't wait to give it to them. You can't wait until their birthday or Christmas arrives. You're, you're giddy. You want them to have it. You want to see them rip off the wrapping paper and give it. That's how we should view Jesus' return. He's so eager. He's so excited to give it to us. It's almost a truth too wonderful to handle, isn't it? Why? Why would it be hard to handle that idea that, that God is just waiting, eager, giddy to give us His kingdom. It's because the, the world and the devil and our own sinful flesh have drowned out that good news with the, the works righteous message of you have to do it. There's no free lunch in this world. You have to earn it. You have to pay for it. And so when we read a text like this, we tend to focus on, okay, now what do I have to do to be ready for Jesus' return? When in fact it's just the opposite. Jesus says, the Lord has made everything ready. He's already given you the kingdom. The fact that this is so wonderful is, is why Paul writes things like he did in 1 Corinthians where he said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the wonderful things that God has in store for us. The point being that we should listen to the psalm, that we should taste and see that the Lord is good, that He's not coming in judgment on His people, but to bring us into his kingdom. Now, to quote Paul one more time, he says, God is willing and able to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. We struggle to ask for the big things that God wants to give us, don't we? Yeah, maybe I'll ask for uh, a job if I don't have a job. Maybe I'll ask for a little bit extra income to take care of my family. Maybe I'll pray that God would take this illness or this disease away from my loved one. Do you know He wants to give you so much more than that? He wants to give you so much more than just the, the trinkets that get you through this life. He wants to give you the entire kingdom. And it's already yours. For Jesus' sake. Because He decided, God decided, that He would give His Son what you deserved and give you what His Son has earned. Now, Jesus is the one who, figuratively speaking, sold it all and gave it away, right? He left His Father's throne in heaven to come down to this earth to live as a beggar His entire life. When He died on that cross, He didn't even have a scrap of clothing left that He could call His own. He is the one who, who maintained that laser focus on His Father's mission. If you read the, through the Gospels, it's striking how often Jesus is praying. And he's praying that, his, that, that he would stay on track, that he would continue on that difficult path to the cross so that he could earn a kingdom 
for beggars like us. And what that means is that it's already ours. The kingdom is yours. God is happy to give it to you. He's pleased to give it to you. And he decided that long before you ever knew anything about him. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but I, I still think Jesus is telling us to do something here. That he's telling us to sell our things and give to the poor. That he is telling us that we should be ready for his return. And that's true. But this only makes any sense scripturally after you have already grasped the reality that the kingdom is yours. That God is pleased to give it to you. There's nothing you need to sell. There's nothing you need to do. It is his free gift to you for Jesus' sake. Only after you believe that promise does the rest of this make sense. Selling your possessions and giving to the needy. Maybe you heard the news that last weekend, I believe it was last Saturday, Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world, gave $100 million to Dolly Parton, of all people, to give away to charities of her choice. Pretty generous thing, right? Um, It wasn't really much for Jeff to give away. He's worth over $1 billion. And I'm not very good at math, but in my understanding, there are a a thousand millions, or a hundred thousand millions in one billion. So he only gave away a little percentage of it. And and he could do that, that freely. He could do that willingly, right? I don't think that he was reluctant at all to give it, and good, good for him. But you have even more than he does. You have the kingdom of God. You have his promise that he will be with you every day, that he will never leave you, never forsake you. He's proved it by sending his son. He's proved it by baptizing you. How much did your baptism cost? How much did the absolution you just heard cost? When you step forward to receive the Lord's body and blood in Holy Communion, there there is a transaction taking place here. But it's you bringing your sins forward and Jesus giving you the robe of his righteousness in return. Knowing that, knowing the riches that we already possess, it's a lot easier to sell our things and give to the poor, isn't it? The kingdom is ours. So what if I have to live with a little older car or a little smaller house or a little, some fewer years of retirement or whatever it may be? If I can show my gratitude to God by helping those in need, why wouldn't I? The kingdom is mine. Or the the keeping watch part. Again, the devil is so good at convincing us that Jesus is coming and he's going to be angry. You know, and he wants us to view it like a teenager would view mom and dad coming home when they're gone for the weekend and they throw a party and the house is a mess and they've done all sorts of things they shouldn't have done. God, uh, the devil wants us to view Jesus' return like that, but it's it's not that. It's the opposite of that. I don't like to tell stories about myself, but I think this one fits. Uh, when I was growing up in Nebraska, my birthday happened to fall near a certain holiday. And the date, you don't need to know the date. It doesn't matter. Um, it's on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Um, <laughs> but they would always come out to celebrate that holiday, and we would also celebrate my birthday when they came out. And so I knew when Grandma and Grandpa came, they were bringing gifts. 
There was something for me in the trunk. And because I knew that, I would spend hours the day that they were expected to arrive. I would ride my bike up and down the street for hours keeping watch for their car. It didn't matter if it was snowing. It didn't matter if it was raining. It didn't matter if it was nine degrees like it is today. Because I knew when they got here, they were bringing me gifts. Jesus is coming to bring us a gift that is better than anything this world can possibly offer. He's coming to bring us total healing, all the wealth, all the riches of heaven, and the best part of all is to be in his presence, watching, waiting, focusing on that, spending time daily in the word so we remember that is coming, receiving the sacrament, praying. Those aren't burdens. Those are riding up your bike up and down the street, waiting for your Lord Jesus to come and give you the best gift of all. I don't know what you would normally take away from this text, but I want you to take this away. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. That's the good news. That's the gospel, right? If, if Jesus says, don't be afraid, the stuff that follows can't be intended to make you afraid. If Jesus says, your Father has already decided to give you the kingdom for free, you don't have to do anything for it, you can be sure He's not going to follow that up with, by saying, no, but here are a few things you have to do to get it. No, it's more wonderful than that. And it's almost too hard to handle, isn't it? That's why Jesus doesn't tell us we have to handle this truth. He says, just let this truth handle you. Amen.